0: Karen King on the show of Winebow. Hello, how are you?
1: I'm good, how are you?
0: Very nice to see you. Good to see you. So you grew up in the South.
1: I grew up in Ohio till 8th grade, and then in Nashville from 8th grade through college, and then I lived in Boston for a couple years, and then I moved back to Tennessee for a few years before I moved to New York.
0: And what was college like for you?
1: I loved it. I went to a small school, George Peabody College for Teachers. It's part of Vanderbilt University now. And it was about 2,500 students, really pretty campus. Mostly gals, though. It wasn't, uh, they used to say, Peabody College, where the girls are girls and the boys are too. So (laughs) then I went from that to the restaurant world.
0: (laughs) What was the move into restaurants?
1: I was in college, and my roommate was working in a restaurant. And I would watch her every night come home and sit in the middle of the floor and counter tips. And I thought, i got to get out of this work-study program and (laughs) work in a restaurant. So I started And uh, my senior year in college, I did it. And then after college, I waited tables a little bit. Then I traveled. And then I taught school. And my second year, I taught school. I waited tables again, do more traveling to support that. And uh, I was actually trying to get out of the restaurant business when I got the job at Union Square Cafe. How did that come about? I needed a job while I looked for something other than the restaurant world. So I saw an ad in the Village Voice back when it was a paper. And uh, there was this little ad for a restaurant on 16th Street, which I lived on 14th Street at the time. So I went over, and there was this young guy in a rugby shirt sitting on a wooden sawhorse, and it was Danny.
0: Danny Meyer. Yes,
1: Danny Meyer. And he was, I guess, 27 at the time.
0: And what was he like at that time?
1: He was fresh and interested and smart and... He had a little bit of restaurant experience, but it was something brand new for him. So he, he, was, he was inspiring from the beginning because Is, of his passion.
0: That's true. Yeah. Like he brought something right away. Yes,
1: definitely. Because he, he loved food and wine and he was really excited about it. He wanted to share that with customers and with the staff. And uh, he was also a very driven person that always wanted to do better. So he would refer to it as the excellence reflex, where you just want to do better. Just that it comes naturally to you, that he wanted to hire people that wanted to do as the best job they could. And where
0: do you think that that vision was coming from? I mean, where was he coming from with those ideas?
1: He uh, spent a lot of time in Italy and restaurants, and his father was in the hotel business, and I think it was his nature, and he liked restaurants, so he got the idea that he wanted to do it.
0: It wasn't open when you first applied to work there.
1: No, it wasn't open. It was under construction. So I was one of the original employees.
0: What were the early staff days like?
1: A lot of people from the Midwest. You wanted really nice people that didn't have jaded attitudes. And uh, we were working hard. We weren't very busy in the beginning. We could tell that the food was good and that the wine was good. And uh, I didn't know anything about wine at that point. I'd had cold duck and uh, Boone's Farm, I think. (laughs) Um, You know, it was kind of hanging on by your knuckles off the ledge until we got the review which i think was in january from brian miller yes from brian miller he
0: gave you a good good review we got a good review and that kind of changed the game for you
1: yes and then pretty much from that point on we were busy for i mean i don't think they're as busy now as they were but they're still very busy but i mean we were maxed out for years we couldn't fit another body in practically
0: I remember there was this American Express television ad, and people were like diving under each other and carrying heavy trays, and (laughs) there seemed like a lot of dynamism and movement in the ad. I don't know what it was like in real life.
1: Yeah, it was busy. It was, I mean, I find a busy restaurant floor is like a ballet or it's a dance, choreography, and I like it for that. You have to really pay attention to your surroundings and move your body so that you can set the things down gracefully, but expediently, and so it was, uh, it was hectic, and I was behind the bar for a long time.
0: You started as a server and bartender.
1: I was a server for about three months, and then I went behind the bar.
0: Yes. And who was coming in back then?
1: Publishing people were coming from the pretty much the beginning because there were publishing houses around heavy hitters that had their specific tables and that were there two, four times a week. I mean, we, we had some celebrities now and again, but uh, it was a lot of regulars. You know, we developed a huge regular crowd, from all over the city so they would travel from different parts of the city or New Jersey so we had a lot of neighbors that would come in bar eating was very important
0: Oh really cuz you know now obviously it is but back then it not.
1: was I think we were I think we might have been the first place that ever had soup to nuts dining at the bar one of the bartenders flew first class he got bumped up and they he said they put a napkin in front of you on your tray and set you up and you felt so good and he said i think we should do that and we but danny already always wanted dining at the bar because he ate out by himself a lot and he you know he said you're more comfortable if you eat at the bar so he had fine dining at i mean people would everything you know fine wine appetizers desserts just like they were at the table. And then some people would come to the bar because they couldn't get a table, and then they'd be converts, and they would always eat at the bar.
0: And so you developed your own regulars at the bar too? Yeah. And it was probably busy for both lunch and dinner from the publishing side. Yes,
1: it was busy lunch and dinner.
0: So What were those early days like? I mean, I know Brian Miller complimented the wine list in the review, but what was it like in terms of the program?
1: Um, It was very Italian-centric, and there were also a lot of French wines. Some domestic, that was the, the main skeleton. I don't really remember any, we had a little bit of Australian wine, but that was it, Italian and French.
0: Because now when you think about Maialino and Marta as being heavily Italian restaurants. I think they're that, all Italian. That he runs. Yeah. You know. Then. Well, that's
1: his true heart where he, he loves the Italian restaurants. That was where he, the food, and that's where I think he fell in love with the idea of restaurants in Italy.
0: And what were the price points back then? Like, what was <clears> an expensive <throat> bottle of wine?
1: Um, you know, they we did have some wines that were in the hundreds, but his markup was times two plus a dollar.
0: Oh, really? For that's the longest time.
1: Not, not a lot, really, no, when you think about no. it. No, no. Now, that doesn't look to be the case when I look at the wine list today at the company. <laughs> I think they've changed...
0: But in general, wine was probably cheaper back yes, then. Yes,
1: it was. Well, and it was more reasonably priced than our. He wanted people to feel that they our prices were the best of our type of restaurant and that people could have a second bottle instead of just having one bottle.
0: And maybe some dessert wine too.
1: We had a lot of dessert wine. We poured Kim by the glass. Who knew when I first started how special Kim was, but I found out, of course. And yeah, we had a lot of dessert wines that we. Regularly, it was always part of the program to have dessert list.
0: So, who was telling you about wine?
1: Danny was giving us classes, educating us. Then, Paul Bolesbevin started taking over as the beverage director.
0: And who's that?
1: Paul Bolesbevin started in the very beginning as an original employee as well. And he had gone to Columbia and then he was working at a, a bar in a bowling alley, I guess, and his wife was coming to school in New York to study to be an Episcopal priest. So he came to New York and he just needed a job. He's a pianist by training and education. Very, very fine. I finally heard him in a concert and he was, I was very surprised how wonderful, I mean, he actually performed at Carnegie Hall at one point, but so he got embroiled in the restaurant world, but he's a very good guy and he was, he's very smart and he started loving wine too, because it, the way Danny presented it to us was just fun. This was at a time where wine was starting to be cool and fun, and you know people were latching onto it. It's the eighties it's it was eighty five when we opened, so yes, it's just when things are starting to sort of change was known pretty quickly as a wine centric spot, so people pretty much- and we had a really good wine by the glass program, so people were drinking wine a lot, but they liked their cocktails. I like my cocktails, you know. <laughs> Um, so wine was always a big part of the whole equation.
0: And did Paul kind of take you under his wing a little bit?
1: Well, I took a trip once and I came back and Paul, who had been doing everything by himself, said, you know, pretty much strong army and said, Karen, I need your help. I need you to help me with inventory. I need you to help me do stuff to run this program. And, uh, that was the beginning, but then he started taking me to tastings and we both kind of realized that I had a good palate and then he gave me the wine by the glass category which you know I would advise anyone who's getting assistance from their from anyone in their program give them part to own because that gives them something they they are excited cuz they're getting to make some choices not necessarily all of the choices but so took that and then he became the general manager and he couldn't do both so I was running the beverage program from behind the bar for a while, a couple of years probably. And that was a little stressful, a little busy. And then finally they said they wanted me to go full time and run the program and leave the bar. So I said, I thought about it for a day and I said, okay, I'll do it. And that was my best decision, <laughs> my best work decision that I could have made.
0: How did you feel it came along for you in terms of learning about wine? I mean, what were some of the? When did you realize you had a good palate in terms of what was it that made you realize?
1: We were at a tasting at Keynes, and it was Burgundy. I do not remember which Burgundy it was. It was a red Burgundy. And I smelled and tasted it, and it gave me goosebumps. And the hairs on my arm stood up. And I looked at Paul, and I said, oh, this is, I see, this is something special, this wine thing. (laughs) <laughs> and just tasting together. That was how it happened. And learning about it, we had wine classes. I took Harriet Lembeck's class. I took Kevin Zraeli's class. Then I, Scott Carney was a master sommelier, and he wanted, they were tr- just at the beginning when the master sommeliers were trying to get more recruits. Obviously, that effort's been quite successful. <laughs> so Scott Carney was a master sommelier, and Roger DeGorn was, and they asked a couple people that they knew in the city that were knowledgeable and I said you can waive the the certification thing and just go right on to the advance so a group of us started studying and I had no idea what I was really getting into I didn't really understand the magnitude of the court of master sommelier so but then I got in too far to stop and uh was just studying like a little demon and tasting and you know that was how I learned and I did proceed I became an advanced sommelier I went through the ma- the quartermaster sommelier exam two rounds and I passed every part once and one part twice, but I never passed them all three together. So I went into the last round and I said, well, I, to myself, I said, I've worked really hard. I, I If I come out of master sommelier, I'm going to be very happy. But if I don't, I'm retiring this effort because when you're preparing, it's your life is kind of out of balance because you, I had cassette tape. I mean, this is, we're going back, cassette tapes. I'm walking down the street, I'm ironing my clothes, I'm making my oatmeal, listening to things, asking myself questions, having wine (laughs) sent to me, and closing my eyes while I (laughs) pour it, you know, just to blind taste myself, in addition to the study group. So it was, it's, anyone who becomes a master sommelier, my hat is off to them, because that is not an easy thing to do. It's really hard, and it gave me a great foundation, and a lot of really good contacts, so...
0: What did you see in terms of wine changing from the 80s into the 90s, mid-90s later?
1: First of all, interest and um, enthusiasm on the part of consumers. It wasn't scary, it was fun, and people were curious about it. They really were interested, and it was something that they wanted to explore. And that's finding wines and helping people be on an adventure is really fun. And they were ready, they were game. They weren't afraid of it, they weren't thinking that it's just snooty. You know, There were people that were super knowledgeable that could deal with any sommelier from Tiavant in Paris to, you know, Joe's pub. But a lot of the just average Joe consumers were really enjoying wine. And the staff was loving wine. That was that was the part that I loved the most, is just getting the, the uh, wait staff very excited and knowledgeable about wines and what we were working with. And that I found very rewarding. Also, the types of wines, esoteric wines were becoming more, I mean, I remember, I th- I do believe I was the very first person to pour Gruner Veltliner in New York City by the glass. And even a few years later, in a setting of sommeliers from across the country, some of them said, I couldn't pour Gruner Veltliner because people have said, you're shortchanging your customers because people, it's not a flavor that's scary. It's not like an orange wine flavor that could scare people. It's not hard to say, you know. So domestic wines were still popular just they are popular now too with i mean sommeliers don't necessarily embrace them but when i look at our numbers in our company they're quite alive and well so americans do like domestic wines california in particular yeah it was starting to, and it was just fun people were enjoying it
0: you know one of the things i notice now is that a lot of times sommeliers will go and do harvest in
1: europe I think that's fantastic. I wish I had ever done it, but uh, I don't think I'm going to do it now. <laughs> but um, that, I think that would be one of the absolute best ways to learn about wine. I mean, visiting wine regions is very, very important. But to actually work and make wine and work in the vineyards, of course, that's going to give you a, a level of understanding that you're not going to get any other way.
0: But I feel like it wasn't a common thing for sommiers to do, say, uh, 10, 15 I
1: didn't years ago. know of it very often, I have to say.
0: Like it never occurred to me. Yeah. You
1: know, it, you know it, like I, it didn't really occur to me either. I'm trying to think, I don't think I knew of anyone back then that did do a harvest. I'd heard of kids traveling in Europe doing harvest to sort of make money, you know, picking grapes and things like that. But not, they weren't wine interested, they were just trying to get by on their, their European trip. But Yeah, I think now people do work harvest more. And also I think wineries know that if they get someone, a good person in there interested, who is a buyer or who is wine interested and has power to buy or influence, they want to get them because if you go and work with someone, you're going to get attached to them, hopefully.
0: The 90s come along. Did you see a rise in allocations? Like in terms of allocated (laughs) wines were becoming more of a thing?
1: Yes, there was, there were a lot of allocations and there were wines that people would call and say, oh, I'm got good news. I've got your allocation. And you would just take whatever they would give you. And I I was never the person that got insanely crazy if I didn't get, because I always thought, well, there are other wines to get. If I were Batard today and I couldn't get a burgundy that I needed, that would be a different story. Or if you were a re- really heavy Bordeaux house and people expected you to have, per se, for instance, has to get the first growths. Not that they're in short supply, but, but yeah, allocations, especially when the economy was crazy good, a lot of allocated wines. And then I think it, you know, people just, some things probably were touted as being allocated that weren't necessarily. And uh, we bought a lot of wine
0: did you see your own palate changing over time?
1: I sure did, and I would always say I I'm going the my, the first wine I ever actually chose to put this is probably going to ruin my reputation for it was a very big California wine. I, I guess I won't say which one it is because I don't Come want on. to s- <laughs> <laughs> What is that? It was Newton unfiltered Chardonnay, yeah, which it was is good. very very rich and it was delicious and I Chose it. It was the first wine that I ever chose that was on the list. And when I saw it, I felt very happy about it. Uh,
0: Did you know that? So Kongsgard, the judge, mm-hmm. that Chardonnay, which is quite expensive. Yes, that's Newton Unfiltered Chardonnay, because John Kongsgard was the winemaker at Newton after oh, okay. after Rick Foreman. Oh, and he brought on the vineyard source for Newton Unfiltered Chardonnay, set the style of it, and then left. Started Kongsgard. And that's what the judge is now. It's that. They oh, still okay. make a new okay. unfiltered Chardonnay, but it's from a different vineyard okay. source. So different. the one that you have is mm-hmm. quite good back then. Yes. You know, like yeah. it's a yeah, different story.
1: Well, that's good. But it was a style of wine that I gravitated away from. And when, I would, when new people would come in and we'd have our first wine tasting get together one on one. And they would all always like the big Chardonnays. And I said, Okay, I just want you to make a note of what you like now and then in a year we're gonna talk because I almost fully guarantee you will go a little bit away from that bigger style to something, you know, more minerally, more zippy acidity, that kind of thing.
0: And why do you think people do that? Because of food or
1: Probably the richness of it and just the it's pleasing and easy when you're new, but as you get more experience, I think it's not as interesting or compelling as others. But also, I can't say that our, you know, prejudice for them doesn't help sway people as well, but I don't know. I think it's it's kind of like a beginner flavor profile in my mind because it's so fruity and more more accessible instead of something you kind of have to go to.
0: And Danny wanted the whole staff to know about wine.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So it wasn't just, you know, you're the sommelier, so you're talking to somebody nobody else knows.
1: No. It was for everybody.
0: And you had to do a lot of training, probably.
1: Yes, which was my favorite thing. I would, uh, at the beginning of the, in January, I would make up my schedule and post it. And I fought tooth and nail to not get those canceled. So they were, I think they were every three weeks. And we tasted good wine. You know, it wasn't, he was generous with letting us taste wine. So the staff really appreciated it.
0: You used to keep the the note cards about the different wines <laughs> yeah. people could refer to.
1: This was before the internet. Yeah, I had a little um, index box, and I would make up notes about the wine, the sapage and the treatment, any story about the winemaker, and keep them at the bar so people could look, and I'd keep it updated.
0: What did that mean to be in a time before the internet, buying wine?
1: <laughs> you couldn't find out information about wine online, which now it's so great. Although I knew... a gal who was sommeliering at Del Posto, and she said people would ask her questions and then look online to see if she had answered correctly. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Whereas back in my dinosaur day, someone would ask me a question I didn't know. I'd go, I don't know, but let me go run up. And so I'd go to my book. I'd find out the information. I'd Xerox it for him. I'd put it in a nice Union Square envelope and hand it to him. So it was snail mail right there on the floor. (laughs) I know you look like you're ready to bust a cut on that one.
0: I can only imagine how long that would take.
1: Oh, I I was fast. I was (laughs) up those stairs and Xeroxing uh, pronto.
0: (laughs) But you're probably also having to deal with a lot of sales books.
1: Yeah, sales books, the beverage media, where at the end of my night I might sit down and have a glass of wine and flip through the beverage media and see things instead of going on to 750, which people would do now. You know, it was just more cumbersome, more... But there were way, way, way fewer companies and fewer wines. It's very competitive. There's a lot of good wine and a lot of good people selling it, a lot of good companies. So I thought there were a lot when I was working, but now there are I think probably twice as many.
0: And who was coming by to sell you wine?
1: Neil Rosenthal used to come he
0: himself. Used to call on you it was him. Himself.
1: Then we changed over to Blake as the company got a little bigger. Um Michael Skernick, when his company was starting, he used to call on us and bring us wine to taste. There, Wildman I bought from...
0: The Colonel. You bought from the Colonel. Wildman. Uh. Okay, I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> I don't know the Colonel. Who's the Colonel?
0: Colonel Wildman, who's the founder of Wildman.
1: Oh, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, he I, wouldn't have been around. Okay, yeah. No, oh. I don't know him. But... Um, I remember when Doug Polaner opened his company, and I said, Oh, God, Doug, why are you opening a company? We don't need another one. And then I became, I think, one of his best, best customers, because I love the wines, and I would be there. And, of course, I bought from Weinbo all along, and Lauber. Those were the big ones.
0: And what did you take from those people? I mean, were there insights that you remember?
1: I remember once someone pointed out, Well, you know, you don't have a... you don't. It was Doug, actually. You don't have a... Santa Barbara Chardonnay. And I thought, no, I don't. And I liked that he pointed that out in a nice way to help me do my job better. (laughs) You have to be careful whose ego you're dealing with on that, but to help your customers do a better job from my point of view now, since I'm on the distribution side, you know, to help them see where something might fit that they hadn't thought of or but mainly the people, they just brought me really good wine and they would know about it. So because of the place where I started, I always dealt with good people, knowledgeable people, good wine. It's sort of like if I were a tailor who never even knew that polyester existed, I only dealt with satins and silk and beautiful fabric because Union Square Cafe was top of its game and they weren't sending schleps, schleppers in that didn't, you know, fit. So I was very lucky that way. I got to work with really great salespeople.
0: How did the staff at Union Square Cafe evolve over time?
1: Well, some of them left. Some of them stayed. Some of them became partners. Paul Bowles Bevan, original waiter, he ended up being general manager, then a partner in the company, and worked in the Union Square Hospitality Group up until last year, or a year and a half ago. So that happened. Many of the people that started as managers would Go up and be general managers. A lot of the kitchen people. I mean, if you take the graph and you see offspring of Union Square, they've a lot of have been quite successful. Gone on to do other things in the restaurant world.
0: Did you feel uh, like it sort of set a blueprint for American restaurant?
1: I felt very excited to be working in a place that I thought was changing what restaurants were. How Dining in America, where you get really fine and good, but it doesn't have to be so fancy and just really attention to detail and also being warm and friendly. Some people accused us of being uh, automatons or robots, and I said, you don't have to be a robot to be nice, you know. You can be nice and know what you're talking about and give good service. You don't have to be stoic and, you know, that can work, but that wasn't what we were doing. So, yeah, I just, and then, of course, watching Danny and his impact, because I remember asking him at one point, Think you'll ever open another restaurant, he goes, Why would I do that? I've got my hands full here. And hello, how many does he have now? <laughs> He's like the restaurant man. So, yeah, things change. And then I had other very good friends who left the restaurant world and became, you know, psychologists or interior designers and quite successful. I mean, friends that I made at Union Square, I, many of them I'll know until I, I die. They were really close, close friends, and we had a lot of fun too.
0: Good parties? Good
1: oh, God, we had great parties. Great parties. Danny was very generous with the parties. We had a killer Christmas party every year and a big picnic in the summer. And those were parties that everyone looked forward to, absolutely.
0: Danny was around a lot.
1: The first nine years, he was there pretty much all the time. So when Gramercy opened, it was sort of like, oh, where's Dad? And and then then you go over and you look at their facility, which Union Square is... 10 pounds of potatoes in a five-pound bag. You know, it's very tight and very old. And Gramercy's kitchen is beautiful, and everything is so spacious. And then we felt like the stepkids, you know. We got over it, but.
0: You actually ended up working at Gramercy.
1: I worked at Gramercy. I worked at Union Square for 17 and a half years. And then when Paul Greco left Gramercy to open Hearth, they needed a beverage director, and I had sort of expressed sort of an antsiness about being at Union Square. They had already had me do... I, at a long part of my tenure there, I was just the beverage director. I didn't have to do anything with managing the restaurant other than wine and spirits and you know managing my stuff. And then I went to Gramercy as their beverage director, but it was also slash manager. So I uh, that transition was hard because... At Union Square, I knew everything. I didn't have to think where to get everything. I go to, to Gramercy, I have to learn 160 employees' names. I need a cup of coffee. How do I get it? I need a pen. And that's before you even think about your job. So it was very exhausting learning all the new things, which, you know, learning, any, getting a new job is challenging.
0: Especially after a long period
1: yes, of time Yes, after a, a long period. Because the, the subsequent two changes were easy compared to that Gramercy thing was hard. And it's because I was somewhere for so long. And yeah. I knew all the steps there.
0: But you're also going into a huge restaurant. Yes. Like really, comparatively. Yes. And it's busy, right? Yes,
1: it was busy. It was busy. But I love Gramercy. I think it's... I'm so proud of them. They work so hard and they just keep doing it year in and year in. I mean, it's 20 years now. It's still great, you know? So... But I didn't like working there, so <laughs> I went out with Kevin Mahan, who's was the general manager, and I said, "Kevin, I just don't want to. I don't want to do it." And he goes, "Well, he's sort of like he's sort of like a couple that they're both good people, but it's just not gelling. So don't feel you know. It just I wasn't happy. So Juliet, who had been assisting me, took over as a beverage director, and she loves doing it. Although she works way too hard, she's kind of a workaholic. But, um she's doing a great job. I think her list is
0: great. How did you see the evolution from Union Square Cafe into Gramercy? I mean, what was the same and what was different?
1: Uh, the wine program was the part that was affecting me the most. They didn 't have half bottles. I was very attached to half bottles. They had a lot of wines by the glass, and they had tastes and glasses, which was very different and they could be food and wine paired very readily and the captains did the food and wine pairing because education also super important at Gramercy, of course. Um, And they were very well versed. Um, So that was different. I, you know, when you work in a restaurant, it's your universe and you don't know exactly what's going on anywhere else. So I was embroiled in the middle of union square world for a long time. So I got to Gramercy and I thought union square was, we're good. We know food. We know wine. So I get to Gramercy and during setup of the dining room, before the restaurant opens, the waiters are just sharing their food experiences from the night before, what they ate and drank together. And I, I realized, whoa, this is a whole other level of interest and professionalism with food. These people are interested and love it, you know, in a way that was way, uh, the benchmark was higher than I even was at Union Square, which I thought we were good there. So that made me go, I am in a different spot here. You know, and it was much more formal also.
0: And I bet the selections in the subway are a bit more eclectic. At Gramercy? Yeah.
1: Um, I didn't find them to be more oh, really? eclectic. Oh, okay. Necessarily.
0: Because, you know, Paul's got that right. Yes.
1: Well, I don't think he, although we, I did inherit a lot of Retsina, which I tried to give away. They made it into sorbet. I, I actually drank some because I, I liked it, but it, I couldn't sell it. <laughs> that was the esoteric thing that I remember. <laughs> from uh, Paul. But it was a good one. I can't remember the producer, but... Um,
0: they made it into sorbet.
1: <laughs> it didn't sell. <laughs> I'm like, we've got these cases of Red Cena, What are we going to do with them? But um, the wine room was tremendously bigger. That was great. Buying power in both places was wonderful. That was a big treat of ours. We didn't have to, you know, scrimp and we could order. We ordered a lot they put cellar wine they put it down so we would order rios and keep it for 10 years and then bring it out so
0: and that was something danny started originally. yes
1: that was that was, and I, I think a lot of it had to do with bob chatterton encouraging him to do so cuz some things maybe there were more purchase than necessary <laughs> but it was a luxury for us to have all that that wine cuz in to, the 80s. and to work with old older vintages was great you know
0: In the 80s, and brought in Reyes. Yes. At that time. Yeah. And what was he like as a character?
1: Uh, I didn't really deal with him that much. I would try not to get on the phone with him because, you know, it's $7,000 later, you're off the phone. He has a beautiful speaking voice. Um, He was always very charming on the phone. His gal, if you called Marianne to place an order, she inevitably gave you to Bob so, so the snake charming could start. I went... At one point, I went up to his office. He wanted to get to know me better and, uh, you know, sort of interrogated me and uh, blind-tasted me on some wines, and which I did well on. One was an Alsatian Pinot Noir, and I can't remember what the other one was, but I, I showed myself well, so I got his stamp of approval. But he was always well-behaved with us, but, you know, I've heard other th- ways he can be.
0: What was it like working with the different chefs? I mean... Union Square Cafe had an original opening chef, then Michael Romano. Ali and-
1: Barker was a lot of fun. I enjoyed him quite a lot. Remember, that was my first fine dining restaurant, so what did I know from chefs? So I understood when Ali ended up moving to Michigan with his wife, and um, he's a chef there now, and they brought in Michael Romano, who had been working at La Caravelle. And uh, then I saw, oh, this is a different level of, of cooking going on here, and Michael Romano was always... Super low key. He wasn't a screamer. He didn't yell. He didn't get, you know, he had high expectations, but he helped coach people into it instead of threatening them and browbeating them to do it. Never heard him raise his voice. He loved wine. He was very interested and knowledgeable about wine. So that was fun because we were wine and wine and food go together, but apparently not all chefs are into it. So that was great. He was really, so he was, I worked with him. Then I worked with Dan Silverman, who Dan and I got along very well. Occasionally we had our little tiffs, but we always, you know, worked through it. He wasn't a yeller, but he did have a little bit more of a short fuse than Michael Romano. Um, and uh, Tom Colicchio, I didn't work with that much, but he was, he wasn't really in the kitchen that much when I went to Gramercy, but he would come in and he was always very low key and, down to earth you know he's solid no bs gabriel kreuter at the modern i could tell he was a very talented chef but i didn't really interact with him that much but he also was very interested and knowledgeable about wine
0: because when they were putting together the the project in the museum of modern art you went there to i opened
1: i opened the the restaurants and the terrace five cafe and cafe two and did all the beverage all the spirits the cocktails, the wine by the glass, the juice, the tea. I loved learning about the tea. The tea was really fun. Um, That was kind of a revelation to me to find out how wonderful tea is. And the wines by the glass for the bar room. But I didn't do anything in terms of the list for the modern because I was not going to be working in the modern. I didn't want to work on the restaurant floor anymore. I was trying to step away from that. And uh, so, but still a lot of the bar things are still in existence there. It's
0: that sounds like a big opening. Like that Oh, that like... was a giant
1: opening. That was like, to do the staff training, you'd be up on the fifth floor, and the tasting was downstairs, and you had to take this freight out. I mean, you had to have a map, practically, to get around. It was huge, and it was like disco, mo- the modern disco. They were When they opened that, it was uh, 2004. The gravy train economics were flying down the track. Parties, morning, noon, and night. And... uh when we first were opening, there were artworks around just getting dusty. I mean, I thought they'd be hermetically sealed everywhere, but it was just leaned up against the wall. I remember once I was walking through with a cup of coffee and the guard goes, no, you can't come in. I'm like, oh, because if you had parties, which we did a lot of parties there, you could only serve white wine because you have to not have any red possible, so... Um, It was, that was really, that was exciting because it was the modern reopening. It was New York City. It was these restaurants and it was, that was cool to be a part of.
0: But somewhere along the line, before all that happened, you won a James Beard Award for Outstanding Wine Service.
1: Well, that was at Union Square Cafe in, uh, I think it might have been 1998. Yes, we did. I was nominated one year and I didn't get it, but I, and I, it came completely out of the blue. I never, I wasn't connected into The whole, you know, I knew we had won awards at a restaurant, but I didn't really know. And then I went to them for the first time, really, that when I was nominated. And uh, it was fun. And then when I won, I was really, really happy. I was excited, you know, dressed up, go up to the stage and. I could tell people people were happy that I won too. It was you know they were happy for me. So that's a
0: good feeling. It
1: was a very good feeling, and I went. I didn't even go to any parties other than I went back to Union Square Cafe and partied with our staff and I danced on the bar for the one of two times in my life I've ever danced on a bar, and it was fun. The other time was recently. The other no. <laughs> the other time was my last uh, shift at Union Square Cafe. So. There I was in my long, white, beaded gown on the bar dancing. and It was a fun, fun night. I was happy.
0: And how many women had won the Outstanding Wine Service Award before?
1: I was the first one. Um, I don't know. How long have they have been in existence? 20 years now? Something. So now, Shelley, love that she did just now, this past May. Very excited. I've been rooting for her for a long time. And Belinda Chang, right before she left the Modern
0: but that's not so many. In no, it's terms only of three. They give it every year.
1: Three. Although it's got to start changing because there's so many women in the wine world right now.
0: What's that so. felt like? That change?
1: I think it's great. And I, truthfully, I never felt. I mean, I was always in the minority, but I never felt like it hindered me at all. Even at a table, you know, with customers or whatever, and I never felt like I was looked down or given less of a chance because I was a gal than than a man. And I love seeing, I love seeing all the wine people that are women now. I'm a little mind boggled at how many wine people there are right now. I mean, it's really, uh, you know, six sommeliers for the modern. <laughs> that's that's a lot.
0: Because back in your day, it was you.
1: Well, at the modern, I think they did have two, plus the wine director, or maybe three. Um, but when I was working the floor, we had no sommeliers. That was me. I was the wine director and no, no one else. And even the Union Square, I think, has two or three sommeliers now. So it's a whole shift in the ideas of dining.
0: Not just for the group, but for the whole city. The whole
1: city, yeah, absolutely. Because there
0: wasn't so many places that had more no, than one.
1: no. It's good to be part of a business that's expanding versus contracting. If we were in publishing or music, which is morphing into all different things, but wine world is just getting better and better. And, you know, it's good. I'm happy.
0: But what have been hindrances? I mean, were there things about what happened with wine along the way that were more difficult than you imagine that they?
1: Well, when I, um, became, had the, had to go from being just straight wine director to wine director and management duties, then my time was stretched out. So the stress of trying to get your, uh, everything done was hard and, I used to be able to be very mannerly and answer all people that got reached out to me, whether I could see them or not. And I would try to see people. I, I only saw people once a month or every six weeks. I wasn't seeing every week the same person, but you could kind of manage it. But today then, but by the end of my tenure, I, I felt very stressed out about how many people were trying to get a piece of, of me and our business. And I, felt like I couldn't be the the mannerly person that I really wanted to be in terms of response time and that kind of thing. Um, I felt kind of, it's worse now, but at one point I felt like a corpse on the plane and the buzzards were trying to pick my eyes out because they just wanted to sell me wine. (laughs) They wanted to to, uh, show me some wine. Now I'm showing people wine.
0: (laughs) What was that evolution like for you? So you leave the union square hospitality group and you start working in distribution and
1: why did well, you I, do that? I, well, I wanted, I had two reasons. Um, well, I was kind of, I didn't want to work on the restaurant floor anymore. I wanted to make more money and work fewer hours. Southern was in town. Seems I reasonable. I knew they wanted to hire people. I knew they would hire me. I, I did make more money, but I actually was working more hours. So I really didn't make more money when you think of it that way. But it was kind of a, I worked with them for a year and a half, it was kind of a good training ground. And at one point, it's super stressful working for Southern, because it's very high pressure. And one point I said, is this what my salespeople have been going through all these years? I had no idea. And and someone said, no, 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 it's not like this anywhere else. And I said, oh, that's good to know. And then I, a year and a half after that, I went to work for Winebow. I wasn't looking, but they approached me and uh, we worked something out, so I to go there and about a, it took me about a year and a half. I felt like I was cheating because it was so much less stress and, you know, it was just much more civilized. And you could hear corks popping in the hallway and people talking with love about wine. And I thought, oh, this is the kind of company I need to be with, you know, just wine lovers, you know.
0: Did you find it was the same skill set from restaurants to distribution or did you find that you had to develop new skills or...?
1: Yeah. You have to develop new skills. I've never been a sales rep per se. I don't know that I would have the fortitude for that, but many of the things overlapped have to be organized. You have to reach out to people, coordinate things, have to get a little bit of a thicker skin than I had. You know, when you are the buyer, you are the person they're coming to. And I was kind of a queen bee for a while. So I, everyone was always answering me and, you know, tending to my, what I wanted. or what they wanted me to think I wanted (laughs) to buy. Um, and now you're on the other side where you're, you know, you have to weave into their world. But I think my people skills are good no matter what. And they, they serve me in both
0: places. I think they're good too. So thanks. (laughs) Have you seen what the buyer looks like change over time?
1: Well, they're getting younger and I'm getting older. They're getting very more master sommelier, uh, There are many more of that tribe, so there are a lot. And I know what it is to be in that where you're just talking about wine and getting all the facts and trying to say them, and you know, as much to reinforce it to yourself as to show someone that you know. But um, so there's uh, there is a lot of that. There are more of them, more people. But I think it's great because it's just it's kind of what it was. Only just more people are doing it.
0: So you took a route that took you from buyer to distribution. Mm -hmm. Do you see a lot of people still making that same trajectory? I I feel like sometimes there's less sommeliers leaving for distribution.
1: Um, They're still doing it. There's sometimes I feel like my part-time job is talking to people that are thinking about leaving uh, the restaurant world. What do you tell them? Well, I say you know it's important to identify when you want to leave and leave before you get jaded and trapped because if you don't leave in time, you you don't have any skills and you're at a point in your life where you're, you can't go entry level for pay and to try to identify what things you really do love and try to find the world. And I try to explain to them a lot about what the distribution side is like, if they're thinking about it, which obviously if they're talking to me, it's one of the things we're thinking about. I also encourage people to cast their net as far as possible and ask everybody and tell everyone because you never know what's going to connect. And, uh, I think it, people like helping other people. They like, they know what it's like to be fishing around trying to figure it out. And um, so.
0: Did you feel like that was a long period of time for you trying to figure it out?
1: I didn't even know I was trying to figure it out until I'd already made the choice to. I knew that what I was, the fit at the last when I had the management beverage combo, I didn't like it. I kept hoping I could find an, a way to change it into something that I would like in the within the confines of the company because I d- didn't really want to leave Union Square Hospitality Group to work for another restaurant unless I could be a corporate buyer. That would be that idea sounds fun, although maybe it isn't as much fun. But those jobs are very few and far between. So when I finally left, then I realized, oh, I've been sort of because twenty years for the company and it's very familial, and I was super comfortable there and loved and loved people and was part of something that was high quality and you know to leave that is not easy but when i finally made the decision and i i realized oh i've been it's been a process because that's not something that you come to overnight it's sort of evolves so yeah but i i never missed it the restaurants
0: you're happy i'm happy i'm happy And what are the things that you don't miss? I mean, what are the things that you're like, I was over it?
1: I don't miss closing the restaurant on Saturday night in the basement at 4 in the morning, counting $7,000 by myself (laughs) at Gramercy Tavern. I really don't miss that. I don't miss counting the number of napkins for someone because I'm checking their side work and they, they have like seven less than they're supposed to. And it's like, I don't like telling someone, you know, you know the lemons need to have the seeds taken out of them. And they get mad and throw them in the trash. And I look at the adult man and say, do you really think I like having to tell an adult to do his job when he knows what his job is? I'm not the bad guy here. You're, I don't miss that. I don't miss that at all. I I do miss the camaraderie over the restaurant floor and the, the wonderful, I mean, it's team sport. You are in there together. You're playing the game. And I do miss that. That is fun and god knows i had a wonderful run in restaurants i had a great career a great experience you know i made good money and saved money and you know i had a good life and i still have a good life but i'm just doing something else and i get to still be working wine so that's i'm really happy about that
0: does it make you a different customer in terms of a restaurant when you go in And you see the server or the bartender. I mean, do you think about it?
1: Oh yeah, you you always think of it in terms of service and what they're doing really good and what they're kind of falling down on. It's. I mean, if you were a dancer and you retired your dancing, you'd still go see a show of ballet or jazz, and you'd be looking at it from that point of view. But I don't get crazy about it. I'm still a very, very good tipper, of course, because I earned my living as a tipped employee for years and years. So. That hasn't changed the kind of customer I am now since I'm in distribution versus in the restaurant. I'm still the same attention to it.
0: So in distribution, you must see a wider part of the wine market that's not sommelier-driven, right? You must yes. see things that sommeliers... Is-
1: well, because there's a whole world of restaurants out there. I mean, you have, you could call them A, B, C restaurants, and I. it's always good to have a mix of A, B, and C restaurants because the A restaurants... It's super competitive and everyone wants to be there. If you get a good solid B restaurant that trusts you and lets you make decisions for their list and works with your wines, you get more of their business because it's easier for them. They want to deal with three, four distributors versus 50 or, you know, I don't know how many, some of the folks I know, Paul used to say he worked with 50 or 60. And that's, that's a lot to keep straight. It's just when you work in a, the rarefied dining world, you kind of forget what the other ones are like. Although you remember very readily when, you, when you're when uh, you in other cities and they don't have any really good restaurants, and you're thinking, oh, wow, they think this is a good salad. <laughs> they think this is a good bottle of wine. <laughs> Cause you can't help it. You t- get a little bit, I don't know, shall we say, snobby. I'm not a snob, but... I, do I think know, you're far from a star. I, I know good things from bad and, and mediocre. So that's a fun, fun world. I, the restaurants, I am really glad I understand them and how they work. I really am happy I don't work in them anymore.
0: And how much did it play into your background as a teacher?
1: Well, I think the teaching, because I love teaching the wine. I still teach wine things sometimes, do little presentations for law firms or things like that. And uh, that's really fun turning people on to wine and helping them discover something and have fun with it and not be too data-oriented. I mean, I went through that period where I was studying like a f- demon and I was all about the data and the facts. And now I, the data and the facts don't thrill me as much. It's more about the way the wine tastes. And the, if I meet the winemaker and know their story and feel them, then I, it makes it better for me. I'm not as in fact-centric as I used to be.
0: And you must meet a lot more winemakers now. In terms of you probably develop closer relationships with some of the same people.
1: Yeah, but I actually met a lot of winemakers when I was a buyer too. So that's a joy for both sides when you get to meet winemakers. Because I don't think I've ever met any bad, mean winemakers. I mean, if you're making wine and growing things and getting your hands in the dirt and your world is contingent on the weather and the planet we live on... (laughs) I think it's hard to be bad, really. I guess I am thinking of more smaller winemakers, not not industrial type of winemaking, which has a place in this world, that's for sure.
0: So who has been successful in your estimation over time in terms of a sommelier or a winemaker? What are the characteristics that the successful people over time have shared?
1: I would say people that... Let's take David Gordon, for instance. I think David Gordon is very successful because he has stayed in wine and he's, I trust that he's doing well financially and he has a balance with his family life and I think he's a success. I think people that, and I'm not going to speak for winemakers, I'm talking about sommeliers, people that figure out ways to use the sommelier skills to get off the restaurant floor and manage people's private sellers, or help buy wine for someone, do consulting. If you can figure out how to get good consulting gigs, I think that would be fun, but that not everyone can pull it off. That, to me, is is a success. Because I being a sommelier on the floor, I mean, for how many years would you do it and really feel jazzed and juiced, I mean? Then people that go they get their sommelier and then they educate the master sommelier and then they become the educator for a company, big winery. I think that would be a good success because you're still in wine, you're teaching and you're making a good living. You know, I think getting to where your work hours are more manageable and your livelihood is healthy is where is a success. Daniel Jonas obviously is Mondo success. I look at him and I think hats off, Mr. Janus, you really, really, worked that out. Tim Kopack is another one. He seems to have really parlayed his skills and knowledge into a really good life of wine business.
0: And have you seen the prestige of the idea of sommelier go up or down?
1: It seemed like it was always prestigious. I think it depends on where you are and what the establishment's like and what your wine list is like. But also there's so much more media to be present in. So press, press was always important and prestigious and no one's going to say they don't like to see their picture or, or a quote of themselves in the paper. It's just cool. You know, <laughs> we like it. That makes it different. The, the online presence, the, all the different kinds of media that are filled up, you know, now you have this podcast and you're talking to all different kinds of people, which I think is cool because people can hear different sides of of the business. But yeah, I guess maybe, maybe it is because it's more present. Maybe it is more, prestigious more uh it seems like there are more people paying attention to it but there are also more things to pay attention to because you have facebook and instagram and twitter and all the you know blogs and podcasts and you know online publications and things like that so
0: karen king it was very nice having you here today
1: thank you very nice being here
0: karen king has been making it fun for herself and a lot of other people for a number of years in the new york wine business thank you all alldrinktothatpod.com that's I-L-L drink that, P-O-D dot com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app please. That's super important to see every episode and thank you for listening.